So you're going to see how a modern translation, a rendition of a translation, which is what we will call this as a paraphrase, trying to put it in simple language, sometimes misses the meaning of uh, the Hebrew word in the situation. This will be very interesting as you listen to that rendition and then listen to the exegesis of the passage. Thank you, Judy. Trio, appreciate that. Hadn't seen Lewis for actually a couple of years. Good to see you. Hoping you'd be here and glad you were. Judy uh, wrote an email to Don and uh, Joe Lyon and myself this week about the songs that she had chosen and said, as much as she likes writing music, she really likes to write the lyrics, the words. So that's really her ministry. And I thought, you know, that is really the truth. I'll, I'll, I've said that once or twice before in this class, but it's worth repeating. Sometimes people say things to you and you never forget them. And this is one of those times I remember a statement that a person made. Remember Tom Malzone? How many remember Tom Malzone? How many want to forget Tom? No. <laughs> uh, Tom Malzone used to be an associate pastor here, and he said something that was very profound one time. He was talking about music. And uh, he turned to the uh, pianist, and he said, as he was preaching, he said, I want you to strike on the piano a secular C. And the person didn't like that. Now I want you to strike a sacred C. And guess what? Exactly the same. There's no such thing as a secular C or sacred C. The only thing that really makes the difference in the music uh, is the, well, first of all, all music comes from the Lord. We're born with the ability to sing without ever knowing a note. Without ever learning to play an instrument, whether it's a piano or guitar or whatever. We can all hum. Most of us can whistle. <clears throat> so we have, music comes from God. So everything, in a sense, is from God. But it's how you use that music. Are you using it for His glory? Are you using it for your own purposes. And one of the ways we can use music for God's glory is to write lyrics that go along with the music that recognize God. And that is a real ministry, and I want to thank Judy for doing that. So anyway, uh, let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. <clears throat> I love one somebody you. It's one of my favorite songs. And I remember when... Uh, Gene and Lucy, uh, Peggy's daughter, Loma's granddaughters, uh, were baptized. I had the privilege of baptizing. It was a great night. I remember John Bander's life. I mean, it just touched his heart. One of the greatest nights, days of his life when that happened. And it's a privilege when someone comes to Christ and says, I want to proclaim it publicly through baptism. And for those of us who baptize, unfortunately, it's not the case all the time, but it should be to baptize somebody as they profess Christ to, an, uh, to a church or an audience is a great privilege. And it was one of the great privileges in my life uh, to baptize Jenna and Lucy, knowing how much it meant to her grandparents and her parents and so on. Well, anyway, Psalm 34, you ready? This is a, a song of thanksgiving. And it commemorates the time that David escaped from King Saul, who was jealous of David because people were picking up that David was a great leader, and they really didn't think Saul was as good a leader as he should have been. So they said, you know, Saul kills his thousands, David slaughters ten thousand. So 
Uh, Saul was uh, very jealous and wanted David to die, and David was on the run. And so that's what this psalm is about. He's, he's not going to give you the details, but he's going to give you the, how he felt in the midst of all that uh, that was going on. Now, there are two things about this psalm that you need to know. Number one is that this is an acrostic psalm. And what that means is that uh, it's very similar to Psalm 119. It's where every verse starts with a Hebrew letter. Now, you can't see that in your English translation. You can only see that in the Hebrew translation. So every verse except the last verse starts, in this case, with a Hebrew letter. And that was done for memory's sake. To make the psalm memorable. People didn't carry psalms in their purses or in their back pocket in those days. They didn't have a printing press. So how did you know the psalm? You memorized the psalms. And this was a memory device. Now the second thing you need to know is you need to look at that superscription there. See what it says? It says a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. Now, uh, this is a reference to an event that took place back in 1 Samuel. So I want you to turn back there because you need to at least see the words. Okay? 1 Samuel and chapter 21. This psalm is based on this event. Now, very interestingly, the superscription says when he escaped from Abimelech. But in 1 Samuel 21, he actually escapes from Achis. And uh, Achis is the king of Gath. So what is it? Does he escape from Abimelech or does he escape from Achis? And we have to determine if this is a mistake in our Bible. You have to ask yourself that. Well, first of all, the superscription is not inspired. Inspired. Okay? Uh, it was added sometime after the psalm was written, and maybe the person who put the superscription over there got mixed up. But there's another explanation. Abimelech, uh, maybe the way that all, a word for king, just like all the emperors of Rome were called Caesar. Okay? And Abimelech could be sort of like a title representing that. And Achis is his real name. So we're just not sure of that. But anyway, it involves David escaping. And I wanted you to look at the passage. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 21 and verse 10. Then David rose and he fled that day before Saul. And he went to Achis, the king of Gath. Now remember, Gath is where Goliath was from. Remember that? And the servants of Achis, said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in their dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart. And he was very much afraid of Achith, the king of Gath. Suddenly, when he realized that people were bragging about him, it literally... Uh, scared him because now there was expectations and suddenly uh, fear grips David. Now let me show you how much fear grips David. Look at verse 13. This is 1 Samuel 21, 13. So he changed his behavior before them and he pretended madness in their hands. He scratched on the doors, look at that, of the gate. 
and he let his saliva fall down on his beard. He acted like he was an insane person. He drooled. Once they recognized him, it scared him because he's trying to escape from Saul. And he's afraid he's going to get arrested. Then Achath, verse 14, said to his servants, Look, you see the man is insane. In other words, that's not David. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of a madman? You have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? In other words, keep that guy away from me. Now I'm going to read the next two verses just so you can see what sort of the follow-up. <clears throat> David therefore departed from there and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all of his father's house heard it, they went down there to him and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him until they came and he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. So this is the story upon which the psalm is based. Now, the reason I read that in detail is because this will allow me in the next 20 minutes to go through the psalm very quickly. So you need to remember this background, okay? So, uh, instead of doing what God would want him to do, which was be brave and walk right in there, he feigns being mad and he escapes for his life. And this psalm, he attributes the escape to God. He basically says, God, you really got me out of that situation. And eventually uh, I was delivered from King Saul. So let's look at Psalm 34. Here's how we're going to outline the psalm. If you're taking notes, verses 1 through 3, we're going to see this is a, uh, a song of gratitude. Verses 1 through 3, we're going to see gratitude. Okay, Verses 4 through 10. We're going to see praise and thanksgiving. Praise and thanksgiving, 4 through 10. 11 through 14, we're going to see a teaching on the fear of God. As Peggy was doing her dramatic reading, there's a section there on the fear of God. That's 11 through 14. And verses 15 through 22, there's a teaching on God's attitude toward those who are righteous and those who are wicked. God's attitude toward those who are righteous and those who are wicked. So let's look at these four sections. Section number one. The thanksgiving section. Look at verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. Now, notice, he says, I will not bless the Lord sometimes. I will bless the Lord at all times. This is David. We're going to call this David's resolve. He resolves to continually bless the Lord. Very similar to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, where he says, in all things, give thanks. You're going to discover as you read this psalm, that many of the New Testament writers borrow material from the psalm, and they put it in their context. So this is David's resolve. I will bless the Lord at all times. Line number two, but it's in verse one. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now this is a Hebrew parallelism. We're in verse one. The first sentence in verse one and the second sentence in verse one mean exactly the same thing. So that is a, uh, a poetry device, okay? Now notice that he says in verse 1 that the praise shall continually be in his mouth, which means he's to vocalize the praise. Not just to praise God under his lips, okay? And as we vocalize our praise, this serves as a witness to others about God's greatness. Now look at verse 2. My soul shall make its boast 
in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it. They're going to hear me give that testimony and they will be glad. So when you praise the Lord, there are results. And some people, when they hear God praise, are glad. Who are glad? The humble. Who are not glad? Yeah, the proud. Uh, proud people want credit themselves. They never want God to get credit. Now look at verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Now notice, this is line number one. Magnify the Lord with me, line number two, and let us exalt his name together. So now what David does, he now invites others to join him in praising the Lord. So that's his first section. This is a praise and thanksgiving section. Now the second section, beginning in verse 4, is a testimony of God's goodness. And it relates to David's great escape. Look at verse 4. I sought the Lord and he heard me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Now you saw that in 1 Samuel, how David was fearful. And David basically attributes his escape, his deliverance to God, his deliverance from his fears. Now the word fears there is not the typical word for fears. This is a word which means terror, dread. Suddenly David looked up and he would terrorized. He dreaded the situation he was in. And somehow God delivered him from his dread, from his terror, from the king, from his cowardice. Okay? Look at verse 5. They looked to him, that's God, and were radiant. That's a positive thing. And their faces were not ashamed. That's a negative thing. What they were and what they were not. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces were not ashamed. Who looked to God? That's the question. Who looked to God and their faces became radiant? Who looked to God and their faces were not ashamed? Is this the people that were with David? We have no idea who they are. It could be that he's personifying the fears. David, in his fear, looked to God. Even my fears looked up to God. And guess what? They became radiant. My face, in a sense, changed from being dark and in gloom to uh, lighting up. Could be that. We're just not sure who the they are in that verse. But the word radiant there, uh, they looked at him and they were radiant, is the same word that's used of a mother who uh, discovers that her lost child has been found. Uh, For days her child's been lost, she's gloomy, she's in a state of depression, and suddenly they say, we found her! And then guess what? (gasps) That's how fast David was changed. And maybe his fears were transformed. Look at verse 6. Now David, speaking of himself, look how he described himself in the third person. The poor man cried out to him. That was David. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. So, now David's describing his actions here. He's describing himself as a poor man. And he says, doesn't mean materially poor, a person who's in desperate shape. And he says, cried out. He heard, notice, cried out. That's what David did. 
Lord heard. That's what God did. God saved him. Saved him out of his what? Troubles. What did he save him out of in verse 4? His fears. His terrors. So his troubles and his terrors right there are related. He was in trouble and he had fears and the Lord delivered him from that. And then what we see is in verse 7 is an explanation. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him. Now that's a different word for fear. This is not being in terror. This is somebody who uh, fears the Lord rather than the king. The angel of the Lord encamps around some of those people who fear God. No. How many? All and delivers them. This is a truism. This is an axiom. Uh, God just doesn't deliver David. He'll deliver anyone who fears him and cries out to him. Now, the angel of the Lord. Now, who delivered David over in verse 4 and verse 6? The Lord. But who delivers David in verse 7? The angel of the Lord. So, what does this mean? Well, the angel of the Lord, one of the ways that uh, the angel of the Lord was described in the Old Testament is the angel of God's presence. Uh, God sent uh, maybe a representative. Some people say this is a pre-incarnate appearance of of Christ. We don't know that for sure. But this is the angel of God's presence. All David knows is even though he could not see anybody there delivering him, he knew God's presence was there and delivered him in that situation. So what he's saying is he's now giving us an axiom that this deliverance is available to everybody who fears God. Now he gives an exhortation. Look at verse 8, at the exhortation. Oh, says to his audience, Taste, you taste, and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. So here's the lesson or the exhortation that David's giving to his people. And he says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Beginning of the verse, he says, taste and see the Lord. So taste and trust are synonyms. Line one and line two basically mean the same thing. Taste the Lord and trust in the Lord are the same thing. Okay? So, taste means to have faith. Have faith in the Lord in these situations. This is another verse that's quoted at least two times in the New Testament. Taste the Lord and see that He is good. And when we trust the Lord and we don't depend on our own devices, we discover the goodness of God. Now, all of us know that God's good. Every one of us in this room. We believe that in some some way. We believe it cognitively, intellectually, we understand that God's good. We believe it theologically, we know based on theology that God is a good God. But it's not until you trust Him yourself that you can experience His goodness individually and personally. So what David is saying, you need to get out of the theory. We all believe that God is good. We need to experience the goodness of God in our lives for ourselves. And you do that by personally trusting Him. Depending upon Him. Notice what he says in verse 9. 
Oh, fear the Lord, you saints. Now notice, verse 8, taste the Lord. Verse 8, trust the Lord. Verse 9, what? Here, look, all mean basically the same thing. Depend upon the Lord. Let Him take care of the situation. Don't fear the king. Fear the Lord. Oh, you saints. Now look at this. There is no want, meaning there is no lack to those who fear Him. There is some lack to those who know. There is no lack to those who fear Him. Why? Because God is good. And He's good all the time. So, uh, all our needs will be supplied and God will care for us if we taste Him, we trust Him, we fear Him. We don't fear people around us. We don't fear the King. We don't fear what people will do if we praise the Lord. Uh, so, this is what these are the instructions that he gets. Can you trust God? If you can trust God, what does it say will happen? You will lack what? Nothing. So, you can tell how much you're trusting God. There's actually a test. How much you're trusting God? You can tell it by how much lack there is in your life. Because here it says, if you trust Him, there will be no lack in your life. Not any. So look at verse 10. The young lions lack and suffer hunger. Now the young lions is a reference to enemy soldiers. Okay, troops. Uh, these are the youthful, vigorous, military elites of uh, foreign governments. Uh, there was a movie out a number of years ago called The Young Lions. How many of you remember that? Marlon Brandon. Now, this will show you how old you are. I went and saw it when I was young. I didn't quite understand it all, but I, it was called The Young Lions. And uh, The Young Lions were about the, uh, like the stormtroopers of uh, Nazi Germany, and they were the elite. All blonde hair, blue eyes, young, vigorous, strong, and they were called the Young Lions. These are the people that Hitler and his generals could really depend upon. But he says, you know, when you depend upon your own strength, your youthfulness, you depend upon the king to take care of you, you will lack. Even though you're an elitist, you're going to lack something. Uh, that's just the way it is. But, look in verse 10. But, those who seek the Lord, that means trust, taste, fear, those that seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. So these are just simple-minded people who say, I can't do it myself, so I'm just going to trust the Lord. So, those that trust the Lord will not lack, look at this, any good thing. So, if we can only learn this lesson and apply it, we won't lack any good thing. Now, if you lack something... I can tell you one thing, one of two things. Number one, either you're not trusting the Lord the way you should, or number two, the thing you lack is not a good thing. It's what you think is good, but it's not what the Lord thinks is good. So here we have these promises that David has learned from his own experiences in, in his uh, desire to escape from King Saul. Now we come to the third section, verse 11. 
where David teaches about the fear of the Lord. And look what he says. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So here David sort of sounds like Solomon, where he's a king, but guess what? He looks at these people, and he doesn't see his people as subjects. He calls them his, what? Children. You see that? So here's the king, rather than seeing his people as his subjects, sees them as his family. He says, come together. He says, I want to teach you something. It's like there were times, there's teachable moments that you had in your children's life where you taught them very important lessons. He says, hey, kids, come together and teach you something. What, Daddy? I'm going to teach you about the fear of the Lord. Look what he says in verse 12. Who is the man who desires life? Sounds a lot like a proverb. Who loves many days that he may see good? He starts his teaching with a question. And the question is, is this the kind of person that you want to be? Who is the who wants to be this kind of a person? Who is the person who, in verse 12, desires life and loves many days? Who wants a long life around here? what he says. But not just a long life, but a long life that he may see what? Good. He's not talking about the, the quantity of life. He's talking about the quality of life. Who wants a life of quality where everywhere you look in your life that, that which surrounds you is good? Who wants that kind of of life. Is that the kind of life you want? Well, here's how you get it. Look at verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil. Line number one in the Hebrew parallelism. No, line number two, verse 13. And your lips from speaking deceit. So, if you want that kind of a life, number one, you must control your tongue. Guard your tongue. The word keep there means guard your tongue. This means it's going to be an effort. It's so easy to say things that you don't mean. And it's so easy to be uh, deceitful. Uh, nuanced things. So people, you know what you really mean, but you want others to think something else. So we need to make sure that we don't do that. That takes an effort. So what he's basically saying is, let your yay be a yay, and let your nay be a nay. Speak clearly. Do not speak evil. And what does he mean by evil? Speaking deceit. See? Don't be duplicitous. Verse 14. Depart from evil and do good. Depart from evil and do good. To depart means to flee. Run away from evil. All kinds of evil. Evil speaking. If you have to depart from it, guess what that means? It's always near. Sin is even at the door. Just waiting for you to open that door. Don't open the door. Run from your life. From evil. Be like Joseph, who hops out of a window, runs from his, for his life. Do like Paul tells Timothy. Flee fornication. Flee youthful lust. Run from evil, is what he says. And then look what he says. The end of verse 14. 
do good. So here's what you're not, here's what you're to do. Depart from evil. On the other side, do good. And then seek peace and pursue it. To pursue it means that you're actively engaged in pursuing peace. And good, doing good. You chase after it. It's elusive. You have to run after it. You have to capture it. It takes an effort. Notice there's two efforts here. One, an effort to depart. And another, an effort to do good. So that is what we are to do. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. Now we come to this last section of the psalm, which starts in verse 15, which, in which David gives us a teaching about God's attitude toward the righteous and God's attitude toward the wicked. Look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Now who are the righteous? The righteous are those who are pursuing truth, pursuing peace, see? turning from evil, doing good. Okay? This is how David defines a righteous person. A righteous person isn't a person that says, I believe, I believe, I believe, and then does what they want to do. And says, eternally secure. No, that's a wicked person. That's a Pharisee. It's not a righteous person. The righteous person doesn't just speak. The righteous person pursues good and peace and tries to do what is right. So it's not enough to claim righteousness. We need to act righteous. In other words, our our life much must match our what we say on our lips. It says if you do that, God's eyes are on you, and guess what? His ears are open to the cries of those kinds of people. That means he hears you, and if he hears you, he answers you. Look at verse 16. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So, he's for the righteous, those who do good, and he's against those who do evil. No matter what they claim. They say, well, I'm a Christian, and you do evil. He's against those kinds of people. Look to what extent it's in the verse 16. To cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Uh, ultimately, God's against them to the point that uh, uh, he's going to allow them to die, and so they'll have no more negative influence on the earth, and people will just be you know, most people don't remember evil people. We remember a few throughout history, but for the most part, evil people are forgotten because they've never made a positive contribution. But good people are remembered. So, David says, uh, God's going to cut the remembrance off from the earth. Now, what we have from verses 12 through 16, that whole section is quoted in 1 Peter chapter 3. And I want to show this to you. So, go to 1 Peter chapter 3. And I want to show you how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. Okay? I told you that many of the verses in this psalm are quoted in the New Testament. This is one example. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 3. And you will see, beginning in verse 10, an indentation probably in your Bible which means that these verses are coming from the Old Testament. And I'm with, you'll see from verses 10 through 12, we have that entire quote there. Okay. So, let me start at the beginning. Let me start at verse 8. Go back a verse or two, so we can put this in context. 
Peter's giving instruction to, to the saints who are scattered, probably Jewish Christians. He's telling them the importance of submitting to uh, parents, submitting to uh, their authorities and children submitting to their parents and so on and so forth. And then he says, verse 8, finally, all of you. Now I've talked to children, I've talked to citizens, I've talked to husbands, I've talked to wives. Now all of you, finally, all of you, be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Don't say I'm a Christian and hate somebody. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted, be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you're called to this. That you may inherit a blessing. For, and then based on that, he goes back to the Old Testament. He says, here's the reason I'm giving you these instructions. Because... He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He uses the Old Testament as the basis for what he's saying. And then I'm just going to read a couple more verses to show you the context. And he who will harm you, and who is he who will harm you if you are followers of what is good? And the answer is what? No one. Not ultimately. Not ultimately. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, for being good, you're blessed. Don't be afraid of their threats. Nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord in your hearts, and be always ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, which is a false accusation, or they're, they're evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, for it is better, if it's the will of God, to suffer for doing good and for doing evil. Now all that writing that Peter has is based on this psalm. So, what he's saying, I'm giving you a formula how to live as a Christian. Even though this is written in the Old Testament, this is still Christian teaching in the sense that this is how we're to live. And so once we realize this, this is a life that pleases God, this is a life that produces goodness, this is a life that produces uh God hearing and rescuing us from our problems. Now look at verse, go back to Psalm uh, 34, let's finish this off. Look at verse 17. The righteous cry out to the Lord, that's people who do good, the people we just learned about, and the Lord hears, and he delivers them out of some of their troubles. It's out of all their troubles. He delivers them out of all their troubles. So if we're not being delivered out of our troubles, we need to realize that we really aren't trusting the Lord, we're not doing good, we're being hypocritical at points. So you see how we are constantly to strive to do good. And when we do that, the Lord hears us and He delivers us out of our troubles. The Lord is near those, verse 18, who have a broken heart. And He saves such as have a contrite spirit. A broken heart over what? probably over their own mistakes, their sins. They have a contrite spirit. They're repentant. Uh, the Lord hears those prayers, 
same, this is a repeated over in Psalm 51, the Lord, a contrite spirit and a broken heart the Lord will not despise. You're familiar with that passage. So, here we have these instructions. Now look at verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Now wait a second. I thought we don't have any problems. Not going to say we don't have any problems. We're going to have problems for doing good. There are going to be people who aren't going to like it. They're going to persecute us. Might get fired from our job. For being Christians. Who knows? But you have to read the verse carefully. Notice it says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Are you going to have afflictions? Yes, you're going to have a lot of them. Plural. Many are the afflictions. But the Lord delivers them out of them all. He doesn't deliver us from them all. There's a difference. Not that he will never have affliction. He doesn't deliver us from afflictions. He delivers us what? Out of afflictions, which has, means, by implication, that you were being afflicted. So you're going to be afflicted, but it's not going to overtake us to the point where we can't survive. Ultimately, we will escape. God will open a door for us to escape. He will deliver us out from all troubles. Since it's all troubles that He delivers, God's record is 100%. Wouldn't you like to have a lawyer to guarantee you 100% He'd win your case? There'll be no lawyer that can guarantee you. There's no lawyer that has 100% record. There's no athlete that has a 1,000% batting average. No one has a perfect score. And so what we have is uh, a God who guarantees to deliver us out from among our afflictions. Now, even if they kill us, we will be delivered out of that affliction. Because the scripture says we will be resurrected at the coming of the Lord. <clears throat> the Jews believed in resurrection. So even if our enemies should happen to kill us, we will be delivered from that one day when God raises us from the dead from new bodies. Ultimately, there will be a deliverance. Now look at verse 20. This gets very interesting. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now that's a hard passage. How does God, the person who's righteous, who trusts the Lord, how does, what does this mean? God guards all of his bones. Well, at least it means God's in control of the situation. We know that. But what does it mean? Not one of them will be broken. A lot of people have broken bones. Martyrs have had their bones broken. Does it mean that none of them will have broken bones without God's knowledge? Is that what it means? Does it mean that people will be afflicted and not have broken bones without God having a reason for allowing them to go through that? Uh, we don't know what that means. I have looked and looked, and I can't determine exactly what it means, but I do know that it applies to somebody. Yeah. Certainly has an implication in the future where Jesus is on the cross, and they say, and not one of his bones was broken. It has a messianic meaning, at least. So, you know, that's sort of a mystery right there, and uh, but it certainly has application for Christ. And then it goes on to say, verse 21, Evil shall slay the wicked. Look at that. The evil do wickedness, but guess what? 
evil will slay the wicked. That means wickedness becomes the executioner of those who do wickedness. It's sort of, sort of one of those tragic things where a person has a plot. Remember, uh, Haman wanted to kill uh, Mordecai and ended up getting caught in his own trap, and he's the one that gets killed. His wickedness produced his own death. So in the end, people who are evil are the ones who die and have no hope whatsoever. It says at the end of verse 21, And those who hate the righteous, meaning righteous people, those who hate righteous people, shall be condemned. Meaning by God. By God. Because God's against them. But in verse 22, look at the contrast. But the Lord redeems the soul of his servants. And none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Now, this is David's psalm based on his experience with the king of Gath and how he escaped. And David says, I'm exhibit A that this psalm is true. And if God did it for me, he'll do it for you as well. And he gives his people instructions. Now, in the New Testament, we see that the New Testament writers use this. And even the Gospel writers use this psalm. And this psalm, in a sense, points to the cross and points to Christ. Now, Christ redeems us uh, from death. Uh, it says Christ came into the world not to condemn the world. Notice the word condemn. Christ came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be what? Saved. Saved might be delivered. Might escape condemnation. Uh, scripture says that he that believeth on him, meaning Christ, is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. So what you have is you have a 34th Psalm which is used by so many of the Gospel and New Testament writers to uh, formulate their own Christian theology and turn it into a theology that centers on Christ, the one who delivers us and redeems us from our enemies. So we'll stop there. We'll pick up at Psalm 35 next week. Notice, 28 verses. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for each person who ministered this morning. Thank you for Judy and her team and for Peggy and for Don and for each person who has come here to be ministered to by your word. Oh, Lord, help us to take this to heart. If we could somehow just spend a week in this psalm and read it over and read it over and learn the lessons that there's no lack for those who trust you. There's no lack and no condemnation for those who do good. Oh, Lord, help us to take these lessons to heart. Learn that if you did it for King David and you did it for these people, you'll do it for us. We thank you for Christ and the cross and the resurrection uh, through which we are ultimately delivered. In his name we pray.